This is AMWA Diversity Dialogues, an interdisciplinary podcast designed to facilitate unfiltered conversations highlighting disparities in medicine and population health and what we can do about it. Welcome back to another installment of AMWA's Diversity Dialogues. Today, I am joined by Dr. Leilani May Acosta. She is an assistant professor of neurology specializing in neurodegenerative memory disorders. She completed residency training in neurology at the University of Virginia and fellowship in cognitive and behavioral neurology at the University of Florida, focusing on creativity, stemming in part from her interest in poetry, drawing, and calligraphy. Her range of publications reflects these varied interests, including peer-reviewed research articles and creative writing, both prose and poetry, which have appeared in publications such as JAMA, JAMA Neurology, and Neurology. Dr. Acosta, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on AMWA's Diversity Dialogues. How are you? I'm well, I'm well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Thank you so much for being here. So, uh, you know, I read your bio, but uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and, you know, your creative expression so far. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, I, I think my road to neurology has been an extension of my interest in creative writing, actually, um, just because whenever I explain what I do to non-medical People, I like to uh, say I like to think about how we think. And I think that's in part what led me down this road to become a cognitive behavioral neurologist just because I love cognitive processes. I love all these aspects of cognition with memory and executive function and things like that. Um, and so that's what led me to be interested in uh, neurology and specifically cognitive behavioral neurology. I think all those uh, aspects of my more scientific interest in cognition is also a reflection of my interest in creative writing, uh, just because it's all about um, you know language and uh, word choice and timing and inflection and reflection and all these other um, aspects of how our brains work that I think is a really uh, fascinating part of creative writing in terms of how people choose to express their ideas, whether it's a a poem or a short story or a novel or, you know, any other aspect of creative writing or the creative arts that I think are also really integral aspect of who we are as human beings and uh, can be a really uh, complementary uh, aspect to um, the practice of medicine in terms of how we understand um, ourselves, how we understand our patients and the relationships we have with them. Yeah, I, I never considered myself to be you know, on the traditional creative side. So I'm always, uh, but I always find people who are able to do a lot of creative expressions very uh, fascinating. I think it's really good. <laughs> it's kind of funny, I think, too, especially being in a traditionally quote-unquote left brain field mm -hmm. like medicine, you meet a lot more people that, you know, we want the data, we want the numbers, we right. want nice, clean algorithms to follow. Um, and I certainly have that side, um, but I've also had this really strong um, creative art side to me where I've always enjoyed writing poetry. I love to draw. I love calligraphy, like you mentioned in, in, 
in the introduction. Right. Um, and so it's been an interesting balance for those more quote unquote right brain skills, <laughs> uh, balancing out with my left brain skills and how to, how to join the two of them. Um, so I think there's definitely room for both. There's definitely room for yeah. people who really only fall in one camp or the other, that is or also people that like to straddle both of those, <laughs> both of those fields. Yeah. So we'll get, we'll talk a little bit more about your creative expressions, um, in a little bit, but, you know, from the neurology perspective, um, are there any, um, aspects of like our diversity inclusion, uh, issues that are you find to be important with cognitive behavioral neurology and in your clinical practice space? Oh, absolutely. Um, unfortunately, uh, minorities are uh, disproportionately at higher risk of developing um, behavior, uh, disorders relevant to cognitive behavioral neurology, so specifically dementias, neurodegenerative dementias like Alzheimer's disease. Um, and unfortunately, because of um, a lot of different reasons. Um, minorities are less likely to seek medical care um, for diagnosing and treating these illnesses. And so um, if you look at, for example, a lot of clinical trials for Alzheimer's disease, um, they're disproportionately um, you know, white patients that are getting studied. Um, usually it's only minority patients who are either you know, black or brown. Um, in those studies. And so it, it calls into question the how broadly some of these results in clinical trials can be applied. Um, certainly there's a lot of history behind why um, certain populations don't end up seeking a diagnosis. Some of it is cultural with a sense of, you know, more, um, more sort of community-based approaches to um, taking care of elders. You know, grandma, we, we just take care of her at home. It's a family. Everybody chips in. Um, you know, we don't necessarily need to expose grandma to any unnecessary medical testing or whatnot. And so they just take care of them at home. Um, some of it is unfortunately because of a mistrust in the medical system because of, you know, of course, atrocious um, incidents in the past with uh, regards to studying people without their consent um, uh, within certain populations. Um some of it is just lack of knowledge about the importance of diagnosing uh, dementias like Alzheimer's disease, um, diagnosing them early, the fact that there are some um, medications we have that can help uh, ameliorate the symptoms of it, if not necessarily curing the disease. Um, so there's certainly a lot of relevant topics. And I mean, I think um, it's really important within um, the cognitive neurology community to make sure that we are providing what outreach we can to um, those patients who are typically underrepresented, you know, in our clinics and our research populations to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to um, get the care that they need, get involved in research, and to really um, hopefully even out some of those um, disparities that uh, exist across those populations. Yeah, and, you know, being a part of, you know, one of those populations myself, I definitely recognize, you know, some of what you're talking about, like uh, last year, and I've shared before on the podcast, uh, my uh, grandfather, who eventually passed away, you know, was going through a, a time where his he was having some dementia, and, you know, needed extra care. But we, you know, because of the other comorbidities going on, 
we, you know, that's how we are in our community. Mm -hmm. We take care of our loved ones at home. And, you know, my, you know, my family members, that's how, you know, we were going about it. And especially with COVID at the time, it was less um, easy to go, (laughs) go Mm -hmm. into somewhere and do things like that. So it was definitely a challenge during that time. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, there's certainly nothing wrong with having a supportive family who wants to help take care of a, of a, of a patient, um, a loved one who's got kind of impairment and, you know, can't take care of those things for, um, themselves. Um, so I think that's, that's beautiful that your family was able to help, was able to help him. I think we just also want to make sure that we can provide, um, opportunities to help in any way that we can as a medical community. Um, you know, especially with the diseases that I treat where we don't have a cure, but just being able to to provide additional support, additional resources that families need and just a better understanding of what's going on. Right. Yeah. Underlying disease. Yeah. Okay, so we can we'll switch gears now into you know the the creative expression side of things. You were featured in Literary Amwa for your work mm-hmm. titled "Morning Sickness." Can you tell us a bit more about that? I, I read I read it and I I really enjoyed reading it. So tell our view our listeners a little bit more about that piece. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, that was published in this last issue over winter 2020 to 2021. Um, If anybody wants to look that up um, online. And it's something actually I haven't really talked that much uh, to people about in general because it centers around a miscarriage that I that I had. Um, You know, of course, it was a very personal experience, one that I shared with my immediate loved ones, but I really didn't tell anybody at work about it. Um, and, uh, as, as my typical style, as I ruminate about things and reflect on things, um, it often comes out on the paper. And so I ended up writing this poem about, uh, essentially those stages of grief and acceptance that, uh, came with me as I was going through that experience of, you know, getting excited about being pregnant and then unfortunately uh, losing the baby. Um, and so that's where that, um, that's where that poem came from. Uh, it's a little bit of a different style than I'm used to writing. So that was an interesting challenge as how to, um, how to convey those thoughts in a different form, um, than I'm used to. And, uh, I've actually gotten, I've got one piece of fan mail from this, (laughs) another, another physician who happened to find this poem online and she, uh, you know, she said how much it moved her. And I was really, I was really touched to hear that because I think it's something that, um, uh, probably a lot of women go through. Um, and it's just not as talked about in our society. I think there's a growing understanding, um, of it. And of course, with, you know, certain celebrities speaking out about, you know, about their own experience with miscarriage, I think there's a little bit less of a taboo centered around it. Um, but I still think it's something that not a lot of people are comfortable sharing or talking about. And I think a lot of women end up suffering silently, um, with this, unless you happen to know, you know, a, a friend or a loved one who has gone through that experience. Um, and so I wrote this in part, again, the healing process for myself, but just to hopefully reach out in a, in a way to other women who might've had a similar experience that, you know, that they're not going through this alone and, um, that others, um, can, can relate to them and can help share and ease their, their pain. Right. And that's true. There's definitely a a change uh, occurring that we can see in how, you know, this topic is talked about and how 
people are identifying more and speaking out more. I think it was really good to see this uh, piece from another physician. You know, there's a lot of physicians who are who experience this, but you're you're working and you're you're continuing on Mm -hmm. in your career. And I know AMWA has a a initiative that they've been doing lately talking about physicians and their fertility and, you know, different Mm -hmm. issues that they might face along the way. So it's really good to see, you know, you know, people like yourself speak out, you know, as hard as it is when you're dealing with it yourself and for, you know, organizations to start to shed some light and provide resources and, you know, build a community for people to, to find someone to relate to, you know? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah. so that's why I was really grateful when I was looking for a place to submit this poem. I, w- I was really excited when I found Amwa's website and the fact that right. there was a literary uh, journal being published through right. them. And uh, it just makes me grateful that there are groups like Amwa that can advocate uh, for some of these uh, unique needs that women physicians face, right. um, you know, revolving around things like maternity leave and, yes. you know, all those issues pertinent to um, practicing as physicians and as women. Right. Yeah. So in general, what sparked your interest in, you know, literary or creative expressions? Uh, was this something you were always into growing up or in your, you know, undergrad or medical school studies? I've always been drawn to poetry specifically. And as the years have progressed more generally to creative writing, um, it was uh, my my fourth grade teacher in elementary school. We had a project to write about something. I don't even remember what the assignment was, but I wrote a poem about there was some California earthquake that had happened. I mean, I lived in Virginia, so it wasn't like it was anything personally relevant <laughs> that I had gone through. Um, but uh, it, was, it was all over the news, and, and I wrote a poem about it. And she wrote some comments on my paper about how how powerful it was when she read it. And I just, I was really struck by that. I don't know why out of all the, you know, writing many writing assignments I'd done at that point in my life. Um, but it just, there was something that resonated with me about, um, the, the power of words to convey emotions or an experience of somebody that always really stuck with me. And so, um, I've always enjoyed all my writing assignments in school, you know, high school and college, I actually thought about being a creative writing minor in college. Wow. My creative mm-hmm. writing uh, instructor for the one class that I took um, discouraged me <laughs> from, from pursuing creative writing as a minor. That's a little bit of another side story. I ended up minoring in English, which still, I mean, fed into my love of literature. And I actually uh, really didn't do a lot of writing for a while. You know, of course, going to medical school and, and residency, didn't necessarily have a lot of time to write. Right. Uh, I was writing more, um, more just sort of personal stuff um, as time permitted. Um, but I started redeveloping that interest actually when I was in medical school to a certain extent because our medical school had a literary magazine um, at the University of Virginia. So I got involved with that. I was actually one of the editors of it my senior year. And it's so, at that point, I, I perceived it as more just a personal writing experience, something that, you know, I could get published in my medical school's a literary magazine and um, didn't necessarily know, never really thought about having a broader audience beyond that. And then it wasn't until I was in fellowship 
where I had a wonderful fellowship mentor who really was intrigued by my creative writing side and uh, had a a series of experiences during residency, um, used to be during fellowship, um, that led me to write uh, specifically my first medical poem. And he really encouraged me to, uh, to try to get it published. And so I ended up discovering, in a sense, the, um, the humanities section of the journal Neurology. And that was my first medical poem that got published. Um, and that it's been, it's been a wonderful ex- journey ever since then of um, getting more pieces published, trying to write different ways, poems, um, short stories, um, essays, um, even some medical art that I've submitted um, to uh, really just find ways of translating that patient experience in a way that's relevant to other clinicians, to other patients, um, any other sort of pearls that um, people can draw from the experience. I think especially in the practice of medicine, we're really drawn to stories And I know for me, even when I'm learning about something that is strictly speaking clinical, when it gets tied in with a patient case or, you know, when you give more details about, you know, the age and the circumstances and the comorbidities of the patient, it makes it a lot more interesting and real versus just reading a sort of a sterile third person description of how a disease unfolds in a textbook. And I think a well-crafted story in whatever creative writing form it is, um, can really impart some valuable lessons to the person who's reading it. Um, and so it's been really just wonderful over the years, um, getting contacted by people that have read my work, um, that were really touched by it. Um, even just for me personally, drawing a, a stronger connection with families, patients that I've written about, and learning about what Um, you know, what my care meant to them and them learning about what my care, my participation in the care of their loved one has also meant to me. So it's been a really beautiful experience. Yeah. It's really good that, you know, during med school, you had the, uh, someone there to encourage you along this path and had a, a medium to encourage this type of practice. I remember in, in my med school, we had a professor that started a art therapy uh, mm-hmm. course that wasn't, you know, part of our credits. It was just, you know, something you could sign up for within the limits of the course. And I, I, I did it one semester, and I really enjoyed just taking a break on a Saturday morning to sit there and, you know, mm-hmm. draw some stuff or paint on a rock or on a shell or something, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So, and that was that was really a, a good outlet for the time that we did that. So I, I really, I think it's good when there are people, you know, who recognize the space for this within mm-hmm. the medical, you know, within the medical field. And I yeah, think I mean, as a... Go ahead. I was going to say, as a neurologist, you know, I'm all about the synapses and forming new right. neural connections and strengthening networks. And so uh, when we do things that are a little bit atypical for us, um, you know, again, not to beat the whole left brain, right brain thing to death, because I know that's not really been proven nowadays. <laughs> but, you know, when you spend a lot of time with a very scientific approach to everything that you do, you need a little bit of a breather yeah. and finding these other alternate pathways to think about the same thing in a different perspective can 
can really help uh, enrich our enrich ourselves as human beings and, and enrich our practice of medicine. So that's all I want to say. Didn't mean to interrupt you. There. No, no, that's okay. Yeah. Funny enough, uh, remembering now that the professor that did this was our neurology professor. All right, all right, neurology represent. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> so that that makes sense. Yeah, and I think you know you went into some of the other the next questions I was going to ask about you know how this impacts with your patients and your families. So we'll you know that's that was good to hear all of that that this is such a wide reaching uh effort for you that happens with this yeah and one thing i'll add uh, add with that i don't necessarily set out to write something about a particular patient as uh-huh. as my goal mm-hmm. it often has come up somewhat organically after a specific encounter um one slightly sad um trend was um the first few pieces that I wrote that were about particular patients were really triggered after the patient had died. And there was something about, you know, either their death or leading up to their death that uh, really moved me as a physician, you know, not only about maybe the patient's experience, but about the family's experience. And it's something that I've made a vow to myself in recent years to try to write to celebrate people while they're still alive. Mm-hmm. Because as much as the family was really honored that I would write something after their loved one had passed, I realized that the patient himself or herself never really um, got to hear that from me directly. Right. And so I've really made a conscious effort to when something strikes me, especially while the patient is still alive, to try to get pen to paper reach out to the family, reach out to the, uh, the loved ones, just get their permission to see if it's, you know, to share with them what I wrote. Mm-hmm. And if, if they give their permission to try to get it published and most patients that I've, patients and families that I've approached about that have been very supportive of it. And it really means a lot to them. And I just learned so much more about, um, the patients as people, um, because, you know, I only see them in a very limited window of time over, maybe over the years that I've taken care of them, but it's such a limited snapshot into their lives. And I learned so much more about their younger years or aspects of their personality or their sense of humor that I wouldn't have learned about otherwise if I hadn't, um, you know, taken the time to communicate more about them with the patients themselves, with family members that really enriches um, not only my writing, but just my understanding of them as people. Yeah. I, I'm sure your your patients who share this experience with you have a have a special connection with that. I I can see how that can have such a big impact on them. That's really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, switching gears a bit now, you know, to some of the other pieces that you have written that have been published. We, you wrote an article about the discrimination against Asian healthcare workers, um, and so I we also had a another um, Asian American physician on the podcast a few episodes ago, and she spoke about her personal experience with. Um, racist remarks and racist comments and especially during the pandemic Mm. last year. Uh, Can you speak to what your personal experience with anything like that has been and how things have been throughout this past year? Sure. Um, Well, the piece that I wrote, excuse me, was titled Unmasking Discrimination Against Asian Healthcare Workers During COVID-19. And I got that published in BMJ Opinion um, last May. And honestly, I hadn't really had um, 
a lot of experience, positive or negative, <clears throat> excuse me, being a, a Asian healthcare worker um, during the time of COVID, but I was just aghast to read reports in the news about, um, you know, hate crimes against Asians going up, about, um, you know, healthcare workers, um, you know, that were Asian um, who were getting um, you know, mocked or discriminated against um, at work. And it really just shocked and saddened me. Um, and so that's what triggered uh, me writing that particular piece. Um, you know, I know you can't see me on the, on the podcast, but I'm a petite Asian female. Uh, both my parents are from the Philippines. Actually, both my parents came from the Philippines to work as nurses um, in the United States. And so, um, you know, being an Asian healthcare worker means a lot to uh, me, especially in the context of my family, because I know, you know, specific to the Philippines, so many Filipinos um, leave the Philippines and work internationally because there's such a demand for, um, for for nurses everywhere. And I mean, I think Filipino nurses, I will say proudly, have a very good reputation um, as um, working working in healthcare. Um, and so, um, this was uh, something that was definitely catching my eyes. I was seeing it. Um, thankfully, I haven't really experienced a lot of it personally, and some of it's almost been more like a backhanded compliment. I remember um, relatively early in the pandemic having a patient who I was seeing over telemedicine, and I think it was a very well-intentioned comment, and most of these comments that I have gotten over the years pre-pandemic have been more along those lines, um, where it was something like, I'm so glad you were able to come to the United States before the pandemic hit. Oh. So, you know, so I could, you know, you could be my doctor. And I, you know, wow. <laughs> have to bear in mind, most of my patients are also cognitively impaired. So sometimes mm -hmm. I take what they say with a little bit of a grain of salt, but, you know, having to explain to them, you know, I was born and raised in the United States. I only speak English. <laughs> I wish I never picked up Tagalog because I was a very stubborn American child and I said I didn't need to learn, <laughs> you know, my, my parents' language. Um, but to have to explain that to people because uh, it's this constant perception um, and not everybody has this, but it's, it is a common perception that if you are a peer of Asian descent, you must have, you know, been immediately coming from a country yourself. You know, nobody thinks so. You know, you could have been, your, your family could have been in the United States for three or four generations, right. but you're always kind of um, perceived as the other. And so, um, you know, it's those kind of comments where there's, oh, your English is so good. Or, yeah. oh, no, no, where are you really from? Where right. are you from? DC area, uh, you know, having to explain to people about those kinds of things. So, um, you know, in it is, you know, it's it's a it's a negative stereotype still as it is, even though some aspects of it are positive um, in terms of oh, you know, the quote unquote model minority and you know all that all that stuff that is fairly or unfairly associated, um, you know, with being with being an Asian doctor. Um, but uh, you know, it still it still persists nonetheless. Um, it has been, you know, I guess my awareness of it is maybe a little bit more heightened just because of the pandemic. But thankfully, I haven't really had any strongly negative experiences like some of my colleagues have had. Um, certainly, there was still a fear of it, um, you know, just because I'm usually the one who's running errands for my family after the kids have gone to bed. And, you know, was I a little bit concerned about going to the grocery store, <laughs> you know, when it was dark outside if somebody might potentially perceive me as, you know, again, being somebody who got over COVID right. from wherever, um, you know, just having read accounts with that, sure. Um, you know, I'm not as worried about that now, thankfully, because nothing has happened, but um, certainly still always some, some concern in the back of my head about that. 
Yeah. When I learned about these um, aggressions happening, you know, during that time, I, I was also very surprised. And then, you know, it, it was kind of a, well, you know, this is the way that people seem to be. So, you know, that kind of, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, ex- you didn't expect it, but then now that you see it happening, you're like, wow, you know, people really can be ignorant and behave yeah. that way, you know? And it yeah. was, it's very sad to, that that was playing out that way, you know, very mm-hmm. mis misinformed and misguided mm-hmm. actions that were taking place. And I... And I learned a lot from our last guest about, you know, how some of these microaggressions that Asian Americans have been experiencing, you know, for decades, even before it came to, you know, more to the forefront in this last year, Mm -hmm. you know, the stereotypical uh, questions that you mentioned, the stereotypical assumptions. So, Mm -hmm. and there were a lot of things that I, I did not know myself going, Mm -hmm. you know, coming into this. So it was, it was really good to be informed about what the experience is. Um, and I, I hope that as you know, this information has become, you know, come to the forefront now that people have been really making a change and, you know, addressing their their stereotypical thoughts as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's something that I think we all need to bear in mind because, I mean, uh, as, as human beings, we, I mean, especially as physicians, we like to categorize things and, you know, diagnose things and, right. and, and, and put people in, in certain boxes in, in, in some sense, which is, I mean, part of our clinical training is to do that, you know, put people in certain diagnostic categories. Um, and it's really also been important for me to keep that in mind. If I see somebody with an, you know, a name that isn't sort of your typical American name, don't, you know, not to just assume that that person comes from another country. If I hear a hint of a accent, don't just assume that that person um, you know, did or didn't grow up in the United States or, you know, how do you, how do you ask those kinds of questions to, you know, enrich your knowledge of the person without sounding like, oh, well, you must be from somewhere else, mm-hmm. you know, making those kinds of assumptions. Um, yeah. And I get a lot of that um, just because I have a, what ostensibly looks potentially like a Hispanic last name, Acosta, um, which, you know, for those who don't know, the Philippines was conquered, you know, was, was ruled by Spain for, for many centuries. And so a lot of uh, Filipinos have Spanish sounding surnames. My first name is actually of Hawaiian origin because my family just, they liked, they love Hawaii. They wanted <laughs> to give me a, a more Hawaiian first name. And so people don't necessarily know what to make of me when they see me because some of them are expecting a Hispanic doctor. I don't look Hispanic necessarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, from behind, all you see is my long, dark hair. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, and tanner skin. So, you know, I did a month in Guatemala when I was in um, medical school. And from behind, a lot of people thought I was Guatemalan. But mm-hmm. when I would turn around, they would realize that I was not Guatemalan. Um, and so just kind of subverting expectations in that regard. A lot of people just because they're used to primarily the most of the Asian people they meet are, for example, Chinese. And so a lot of people assume that I'm Chinese, which I'm not. And they'll try to say hello to me or some other phrase in Chinese. I'm like, sorry, I don't yeah. understand what you're saying. Or, uh-huh. you know, then we get, then we do the whole guessing game about, right. you know, what, what country <laughs> of, of origin my family is from. I mean, mm-hmm. they, or they ask me like, well, where are you from? You know, this whole thing about, oh, 
from the United States, but my family is from, you know, how much do we draw at that game or how much do I just have right. fun about saying, you know, my family's from the Philippines, but, you know, I for myself an American because I was born and raised here. So, I um, mean, you know, I'm not necessarily offended depending on the, on the circumstance, but, you know, how do we help broaden people's horizons so that we're not just, you know, pigeonholing everybody exactly. or having certain expectations. Right. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's, it's quite a task, you know, to where we have a long way to go as people, Mm -hmm. you know, with this. So, yeah. Yeah. Another article you wrote, um, putting on my daily mascara. And, uh, I, I thought that was a very interesting read and I wanted you to, Talk about your experience, uh, uh, you know, where that article came from as well, you know. Yeah, so that one was published on Kevin MD, and um, it's, uh, it came to me because I do speak some Spanish. I actually studied Spanish in, um, in college, and the Spanish term for mask is mascara. And so I thought it was really interesting in the beginning of pandemic where I would see signs up, of course, in English and Spanish encouraging people to wear their masks. And I thought it was really interesting that mascara, you know, mask in Spanish, looked a lot like mascara in English, of course, with the change of the accent. And so the title of the the essay I wrote was Putting on on My Daily Mascara. Because, of course, I was masking up to, to come into work. Um, and I just thought that was an interesting pun. I love puns. I mean, I think most people who like creative writing <laughs> yeah. love puns. Plus, I kind of have old man humor anyways in terms of my love of puns. <laughs> and uh, I just thought it was uh, interesting to think about. I was putting on my mask every day, but I really almost never wear makeup. Um, maybe I did a little bit when I was younger, but I've just never really been much of a makeup person. And it led me to reflect on these aspects of appearances, especially as a female physician. What are expectations regarding makeup or hair or the type of clothing that you wear? Um, Because one of the other sort of wardrobe changes I made during the pandemic was I switched to wearing scrubs, generally hadn't done a lot of, but, you know, it was still early days and we weren't sure about transmission, how much of it was, you know, fomite contact and how long it would live on clothing and things like that. So I started wearing scrubs every day. And prior to that, I'd always worn my white coat, worn you know, what I consider more professional attire, because again, you can't necessarily tell because this is uh, just audio, but uh, people tell me I look young. Um, and so, you know, I'd be rounding with the inpatient team and people wouldn't think that I was the attending because they thought, you know, the, the male intern was the attending right. um, on rounds. And so I would wear my white coat, I would wear my professional attire because um, I thought that would make me look older. And I mean, that maybe was in part of why I wore maybe a little bit more makeup when I was um, when I was younger. And then just as the years have gone by and I've simplified some aspects of my routine, um, you know, some of that stuff went by the wayside. And I really had to think about those uh, perceptions of appearance as a female physician during the pandemic. So, you know, I had used my white coat and my more quote-unquote professional attires to make me look older. Well, you know, would people see me any differently if I wore scrubs? You know, do people see me differently because I don't, you know, get my hair done every, you know, every month or because I don't wear makeup? And, you know, what are those expectations that people have of how a female physician should look or shouldn't look? Mm -hmm. Um, And so those are really the reflections that um, drove me to wrote that 
uh, to write that essay. Um, so it was just an interesting reflection. I don't think people necessarily have to be one way or another. I think people should obviously be still professionally dressed and uh, be authentic to who, who they are. Um, but I think some of these, you know, we need to get rid of some of the stereotypes of how we expect women physicians to look or not look. Yeah, that that is something um, I've seen also, you know, from being a student and rotating with uh, women physicians that uh, women physicians and women physicians um, from the minority population. And a mm-hmm. lot of I've seen it firsthand where the assumption was made that a, another white male student was the attendant physician mm-hmm. there to see them, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's just unfortunate that we, you know, society, you know, for a majority might think that the, what a physician looks like is this, mm-hmm. you know, this, this look. So it, you know, over time, I think, you know, we were, we're making strides, you know, we have our, our women organizations that are, mm-hmm. you know, promoting and, you know, changing the narrative. So I think over time we'll see. And as women, you know, we're we're usually able to, to stand up and hold our own and say, mm-hmm. you know, actually. <laughs> yes, yes. So. With, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think it's important, you know, for representation to see, you know, other female physicians, other female minority physicians. I mean, it was a few months ago, I got stopped um, on the elevator um, by, uh, I don't actually know what her role was, but, you know, she was a medical worker at the hospital who was a minority, and she stopped me and she said, are you a surgeon? And I wasn't sure, you know, she thought I was somebody, oh, no, you know, well, I'm, I'm a physician, I'm a neurologist. You know, she just said, you know, it just always makes me so happy to see another minority woman mm-hmm. as a physician because it just gives you know, it gives me hope for our future and just to represent. And, you know, I just had this lovely little conversation with her um, on the elevator, <laughs> um, you know, as we were going to our respective floors. And I, you know, it's not something I necessarily think about all the time. Um, you know, but I think about that for my daughter. I think about that for, um, you know, for other Young women, young women uh, who are minorities uh, that don't, that may not have those role models to look up to. Thankfully, yeah. I have a strong medical background within my own family. My, my maternal grandmother was actually a physician, um, and so it never seemed odd to me to, you know, to pursue medicine as a as a woman because I saw that in my grandmother. Um, but I know not everybody has that background, so I think. Um, you know, getting that message out there, being visible, you know, in your hospitals uh, with organizations like AMWA, you know, right. being on social media and representing, you know, this is what a female physician looks like or this is what a doctor looks like and other hashtags. Yeah. And yeah. so relatively new to Twitter, the whole hashtag right. thing, you know, <laughs> yeah. representing um, and showing people that, you know, that we yeah. can represent. Yeah. And we will, I'll definitely include the links to these uh, articles and to your uh, AMWA literary in the description for the podcast. I'm sure everyone will be looking forward to reading these in detail. Yeah. Thank you. So as we're coming down to the end of this um, pre-pandemic, were there any barriers you had to overcome, you know, as a physician of Filipino descent and, you know, even though, you know, you were born here and raised here, but just like we've been talking about, were there anything, were there any things that came up along the way for you? Uh, 
you know, I think I thankfully had a lot of privileges to a certain extent where I had two parents that were college and plus educated, um, you know, pretty secure middle, middle class background uh, that were able to provide me the education and the means to be able to pursue um, my dream of becoming a physician. So in one sense, those sort of positive minority aspects of, you know, being the daughter of immigrants who were well-educated, who had a comfortable lifestyle, like I had benefited from some of those, in a sense, positive stereotypes about being um, being an Asian physician. Um, you know, in terms of just my practice of medicine, kind of like what I talked about earlier in terms of just... Um, you know, sometimes having that surprise of, you know, expecting sort of a, a gray, gray haired, gray bearded, yeah. um, you know, physician mm-hmm. telling them, you know, I'm not, I'm, 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 I assure you I have, I've gone through enough education <laughs> to be your physician. Um, you know, thankfully I haven't really had necessarily any negative experiences of people, you know, and I've seen that with other, um, uh, sometimes with other colleagues, somebody who's demanding somebody who, quote unquote, speaks English or who, you know, looks a certain way or doesn't look a certain way. Um, you know, I haven't really had a whole lot of that, um, thankfully. Um, you know, some of it has been just more with being a woman rather than being a minority woman. I remember having a discussion one time with a former trainee who um, I like to think I have some tough love. You know, I like I have high expectations for my residents. Um, and I'm generally, um, at least like I said, consider myself pretty pretty friendly and easygoing. But, you know, I do put a little bit of a game face on when I'm working with the, with the trainees. Mm-hmm. And it was really interesting talking with him about what it was like having me as an attending um, because I think, and he admitted to this himself where, it's kind of the stereotype about a more maternal and like, you know, a fuzzy, cuddly, you know, female physician. And I wasn't necessarily all that touchy feely hand holding. You know, I think I like he, he acknowledged that I gave a lot of, you know, really good supervision and had a lot of high expectations, but I wasn't necessarily as warm and fuzzy as he expected, sort of expected in a female physician. Right. And I was really proud of him for acknowledging that expectation of him. Um, you know, that he had from, from his own experience that it really made me think a lot too about, you know, how, what, what perception do I give off, you know, not only as a physician, but, you know, especially as a mentor to, to trainees. So that's been something really interesting to talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, so those are some of the the highlights of of that kind of experience, um, being a, being a Filipino, a female physician. Okay. Thank you. Well, so my last question for you, you know, today is that as the landscape of of medical training and medicine is evolving, do you have any advice for young women like myself, young women trainees of, you know, all different racial backgrounds and cultural backgrounds that you want to share with us today? It's hard. It's it's funny because when I think about advice that I want to give to people, sometimes it sounds so cliched and hackneyed. Some sometimes, and I think one of the biggest lessons I think I have learned almost the hard way is just to know your worth and to be true to yourself. And I mean, some of that again, you parse that apart. It sounds really cliched, um, but I think sometimes 
I can undervalue what I bring to the table. And, uh, you know, in the back of my head, I wonder, well, did I get this just because I'm filling in the minority role? Or did I get this because I'm filling in, you know, the, the female role that they need? They need to check that box. And I don't think anybody who's not a woman, who's not a minority, spends one fraction of a second thinking right. about whether or not they deserve to be at the table. Yeah. And so I think just taking a step back and looking at what you've achieved you know, being a woman, being a minority, you know, getting into medical school, getting through residency and, you know, working as a physician. I think just to know, you know, know that you bring value, just being who you are, and especially in that role as a trusted, you know, physician, mentor, advisor, you know, whatever role that you have, um, being a female physician, especially being a female minority physician. And so um, I think if I had really taken that to heart, I would have wasted a lot less time worrying about X, Y, and Z <laughs> over, um, over the years um, in my practice of medicine. Um, and just knowing that, knowing that aspect of who you are and just being proud of it, um, no, not having to um, you know, hide any aspect of you know, your background or having to apologize for being female or anything like that, because I think there's so many wonderful um, skills and traits that we bring as, um, as female physicians um, that are, I think are really valued um, by our colleagues, yeah. by our patients that we, um, you know, we need to, we need to embrace it and really, and celebrate that. Yeah. I agree. Thank you so much. Uh, you know, personally, it's good to hear you speak this way. It's good. It's a good reminder for me, you know, still early in the game, you know, starting out. So I will definitely keep those, you know, concepts in mind as I, you know, begin my career in the near future. <laughs> Well, once again, uh, Dr. Acosta, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, to sit with me and, you know, share so eloquently about everything that you have been uh, doing, your creative writing, and how, you know, you're moving in this world. So thank you so much again for being here. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. And thank you for doing your part to help inspire and really bring together um, specifically women physicians and women physicians of color. Thank you so much. All right. AMWA Diversity Dialogues is a podcast created by the Section of Diversity and Inclusion from the American Medical Women's Association. Thanks for tuning in. Mm-hmm.